Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping entrepreneurs healthy and powerful. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist based in Harley Street, London, specializing in extreme fat loss. Being an entrepreneur myself, I like to find seamless solutions to health problems. And to help you with that mission today, we have the honor of having Matt Caulfield on the show. Matt is an NLP trainer, a high performance coach, and the owner of Matt Caulfield Training and Consulting. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Matt. Well, thank you very much for having me. Matt, you did my NLP uh, certification 10 years ago. I really enjoyed having that course with you. And anybody listening who wants to do, qualify themselves in NLP, I, I strongly recommend, Matt, you're amazing. So, well, thank you very much. I can't believe it was 10 years ago, to be honest. I know. I can't either. Um, 10 amazing years. So uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Tell us, what is NLP? Well, NLP is uh, short for a rather long-winded uh, phrase, neuro-linguistic programming. You'll probably find there is as many definitions of NLP as there are people who do it, to be honest, because it's a very, very broad church. But the sort of standard definition that most people use is the study of the structure of subjective experience, which is quite a mouthful in itself, and what we can calculate from that. NLP, what NLP provides is a really good model to help us understand how, as humans, we think, we behave, and we communicate. And then from that, we can then help people to improve a vast area of their lives from uh, improving their communication skills, so it's, it's relevant within coaching, within business, within leadership, uh, within sports. It also allows people to change behaviours very, very quickly, so you'll find that NLP is used within uh, therapy an awful lot or self-help work it's also an excellent learning tool what it does and what NLP became quite famous for was deconstructing behaviours and then rebuilding that and, and building it in a way that allows you to teach it to other people so that, in NLP we call that modelling but we, I don't think we need to worry too much about you know, complicated terminology um, but what that allows us to do is understand how somebody who does something excellently does it model that in some way or codify that in some way that allows us to teach that to other people. So not only is that very, very useful in the educational field, in fact, NLP became quite famous early on for something known as the spelling strategy, which was where Richard Bandler, who was one of the co-founders of the field, found really, really good spellers, people who spell really well, deconstructed how they did it, and then taught that to poor spellers. Uh, so what you've got is lots of strategies that can just be applied to lots and lots of different places. Another definition of NLP is we often describe it as an attitude that has created a methodology that has left behind a trail of techniques. So the attitude is one of curiosity, of interest, of tenacity, of wanting to know what's going on. And that has then created this methodology that I've just described. And then what's come out of that is a series of applications and techniques, which have a very, very broad range, as I said, from therapy or related to business, sports, education and training. Now, some, of, some people think of NLP as just a bunch of techniques, but that would be simplifying it a little bit too much, to be honest. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love how you've always been interested in the human mind and human behavior and psychology and personal change. And what got you into NLP? How, what's been your journey into this, this world? As many things that happen in life, a bit of synchronicity, a bit of random chance, a bit of luck. Uh, you might find this hard to believe, but when I was much younger, I was very shy. I was very, very unconfident. I lacked um, social skills and communication skills. I'd kind of run and hide. I did that thing where I like bought a motorbike and leather jacket and grew my hair long and did that whole rebel without a clue thing for a while. But uh, one of the things that... Uh, 
I got into through one of my friends. He said, oh, you know, you want to build confidence, take up martial arts. You know, that'll build confidence. So I did martial arts. I still do now. I still teach Thai boxing to this day. Uh, and I started at the age of 12. And I did martial arts for about 10 years, about 11 or 10 years. And, and then I started taking up, I took up Thai boxing when I was 20. And I was talking to my Thai boxing instructor one day. And I said, oh, you know, I, I, I took up martial arts because I wanted to build confidence. And I, I might be quite good at martial arts, but I don't actually feel any more confident, particularly in the situations that I want to feel confident in. You know, it's uh, being able to hit someone really hard isn't particularly useful in a job interview, for example. <laughs> I suppose it depends what job interview you're going for, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so he was, <laughs> he was an NLP trainer himself, and he said, oh, have you heard of this NLP thing? And I was like, no, what's that? And he, I was a bit suspicious, to be honest with you, because being a bit, uh, you know, not being overly confident myself and that sort of thing, I was a bit suspicious of what seemed quite as a, like a, a very sort of rah, rah, self-helpy technique. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, there are people who do that rah, rah, rah stuff with it, but it doesn't have to be that. So he did some NLP techniques on me, and I found they really, really helped. He taught me um, some NLP techniques that I found really improved improve my communication skills, change my state, made me feel confident, you know, motivated, all those sort of things. So I saved up, this was in 1998, 1999, so I saved up uh, my, my pennies and I went to train in London uh, and did my own NLP practitioner training with Richard Bander, who's a co-creator of the field, uh, Paul McKenna, who I think most people have heard of, and a chap called Michael Breen, who uh, is an American guy from New York, who, to be honest with you, was one of the biggest influences on me in NLP. He um, came from the coaching field, the high-performance coaching field. I trained with him in coaching and that sort of thing. Uh, in 2001, I did my master practitioner. Because what happens when you do your NLP practitioner, you were probably the same stuff. Hopefully you were anyway. You become a little bit evangelical about it for a while. And you go, oh, you know, you should do this NLP thing. I can fix you. I can help you stop smoking. I can help you lose weight. And so what happened was friends and friends of friends came up to me and said, oh, can you, you know, help me quit smoking, Matt? Or can you make Dave think he's a washing machine? Or, you know, silly things like that. And, and so, so this, this random private practice developed. But I, I never was interested in doing this for a living. I just wanted to, as you say, for personal development reasons. Uh, and, and I found I really enjoyed working with people. And I found I really, really enjoyed seeing the change in other people in the same way they changed me. So I saved my pennies that I made from this little private practice that I accidentally developed, did my master practitioner. And then in 2003, essentially, really to complete the set, I did my trainer training. Because Richard Bandler doesn't do much trainer training. And this was the first time it had been in London for a few years. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll take the opportunity just to get my trainer. As part of that, you have to then do um, a training and video it and then send it off. Once you complete your trainer training, you are just a provisional trainer. So this chap, Bob, that I, my Thai box instructor, who's also an NLP trainer, he said, oh, come in with me, I'll we'll do a training. And, uh, and then this glorious partnership was born for about two or three years where we worked together, uh, which I refused to admit at the time, but now I see very much as my apprenticeship. And, and then in 2006, 2007, I, me and Bob went, I said, we're very amicable, we still got on very well. I spoke to him yesterday, in fact. Uh, we still got on very well, um, but we went our separate ways, and I started doing my own NLP training, and that's when I rebranded Smack Cornfield Training and Consultancy, and started doing high-performance coaching. And that was 2006, so that was, what, 13-ish years ago. Yeah, and in your high-performance coaching, you've worked with Olympic athletes, 
world record holders, top business people, celebrities. And you've now studied and uh, you've got these insights into the mind of the high performer, the ambitious, intelligent entrepreneur and or, or sportsman. And are there unique insights? Well, I mean, we're all made of the same stuff. We're all, we all have a mind that, that likes to, to take uh, control now and again. However, do, have you made some specific insights into the minds of high achievers, the pursuit of excellence at all costs sometimes, including personal costs on occasion. Yeah. So what have you observed? What, what have you noticed that are unique pressures to high achievers? There's, there's a couple of, uh, I, there's, as you say, everyone is unique and everyone uh, has their own pressures, their own desires, their own drives, their own problems. As part of being a high performance coach is recognizing those things. One thing you never do as a high performance coach, incidentally, is you never offer advice, you never tell people what to do. I cannot question or understand uh, an Olympic athlete or a world record holder or someone who's built a multi-million dollar business from scratch. I haven't been there, I haven't done it, I can't offer advice, but what I do is help them improve the quality of their thinking. And it's the same with everybody. You know, I work, I, I may mainly work with, with these high-end people, but, you know, I'll also work with someone who's very much starting out on their career and just trying to understand what they want to do. But from the high-performance side of things, there's two areas, really, which are, which are the two most common ones. The first one you touched on there briefly, which is success at all costs. Uh, I will often get with a bit of a stereotype here, so, so please bear with me because it's not always like this, but, but uh, in me it's often men, uh, and they are, tend to be in their mid-50s. They will probably have a series of failed marriages uh, and several children they've lost touch with along the way, but have a very successful business. And then all of a sudden they've had this revelation that, hang on a minute, I've got all this, what we would term success in our, you know, in, in sort of the social idea of it, of, you know, he's got the Ferrari and the big house and the private plane and all that sort of thing, but everything else kind of stinks. So it's then working with them to help essentially refocus. You're not telling them to give up that business, it's just about helping them refocus their drive slightly, recognizing that the skills they've got in business can be applied to their family as well and helping them gain that balance. The other side of the coin, because um, that's, that's not everybody that's successful, obviously, like if, uh, I don't want to make it the stereotype that uh, everyone's like that. The other side of the very successful people who uh, maybe have, have hit a bit of a stumbling block or they seem to have plateaued somewhere along the line, and then it's just helping them just take that next step. Yeah. Often what you do when you get people like that is, is, is actually a, a, a method of subtraction. Uh, I often, I don't know if you've ever bought a new house or anything like that, oh, but yes. if you buy a new house or have some work done around, uh, you often have a snagging list at the end of it, don't you? The, mm -hmm. the, the jobs that haven't quite been finished off. Uh, often with high performance, you have this this um, psychological snagging list, as it were, little things that we've never quite sorted out or crippled with or, or never got there. So it's working with those small little things that can make the incremental difference. Or as you say, a lot of it is, is, is as I say, a lot of it is a subtraction. Whereas we tend to believe to get more done, we need to do more or we need to add something to the equation. My experience is it couldn't be any further from the truth. If something isn't working for you, what you want to do is start taking things away. Start taking things away, taking things away until you get down to the core of what's going on. We pick up a lot of detritus as we move through life. We pick up a lot of unwanted habits, bad habits that may have worked for us at a time, but don't work for us anymore. And then it's about subtracting those habits and helping the person refocus again. Yeah, absolutely. And what I like about um, the midlife opportunity 
in someone's life because I don't see it as a midlife crisis, but more like a midlife opportunity to reevaluate your values. And having a conversation with you can be a real catalyst for change in someone's life and how they apply their business acumen to say their health in my case or as you said earlier to to family you know it just shows them you look you are successful you can do this you've done it in business now just apply that to your health and you really bridge that gap for them and when they're coming to me looking to improve their health they tend to have pushed so much on the wealth front that they've gotten into bad health health habits like smoking like drinking and what I like about you is you can really get into their minds and help them see a way out where they can quit smoking forever. And that's really what you're famous for. Um, it's a music to a lot of ears listening on this show. So tell us about how you help people quit smoking. Well, it was something that I, I, I built a reputation on sort of early, early days. If I'm entirely honest with you, I don't do much smoking cessation work anymore. But, um, but it, to be honest with you, whether you pick smoking, as you said, drinking, there may be other bad habits, you know, recreational drug use, that sort of thing. And the things that you have to look at are the fact that, one, one of the most important things that people have to recognise is there was, at some point in their life, there was a time when they didn't do it. So often what you will get is people who will say, I'm a smoker, and they will identify with smoking. Now, if your personal identity is that of a smoker, and then you take away the one thing that they identify themselves as, they're never going to quit. Or they will quit, and they will get angry or frustrated, and then they will just start again a few months later. Or you've probably seen the evangelical ex-smokers who go around and tell everyone they should quit and cough in front of people who are smoking cigarettes and that sort of thing. That is kind of when they've flipped out of control, because secretly they really still want to be smoking because they identify as a smoker. So one of the first things you have to do is get that person to change their identity of themselves. Get them to recognise that smoking is simply a behaviour. It is something that we do. It's not what we are. It's not who we are. Uh, language plays these little tricks with us. We understand the world through language. We're language-based creatures. So how we describe the world to ourselves becomes our world. So if we describe ourselves as a smoker, we become a smoker. So it's about changing the way they describe themselves. Once you've got through that, it's just, to be honest with you, smoking. With smoking, you have to remember this, obviously, in particular with recreational drug abuse and with um, drinking as well, there's a certain amount of physiological elements going on there. You know, there's nicotine, which is addictive, and that sort of thing. So there is obviously certain elements where people have to use a certain amount of willpower. But once you start changing that behaviour, uh, studies have shown that actually these things aren't that addictive in the grand scheme of things. You know, nicotine is no more addictive than coffee, for example, or caffeine. Uh, what people tend to become addicted to is the purpose of this behaviour, what it's giving them behaviourally. So what, once you've got that, it's the same as taking away any other behaviour. You work out what they're doing it for, why are they smoking, why are they drinking, why are they taking drugs, why are they, you know, X, Y, or Z, and then you take that behaviour and you apply it to something else. So to give you a bit of a random example, um, it's not actually about smoking, it's about weight loss, but hopefully you don't mind. Um, not at all. The, because <laughs> the, you said, obviously, you work with, with radical weight loss as well. Mm -hmm. uh, what you tend to find is people who get, uh, who, who put on a lot of weight, who eat an awful lot, who, who get very, very, very fat very easily, is they are very, very motivated to eat. You know, they think about food all of the time. You know, if you think about it, they are brilliant at putting on weight. 
it's an absolutely fantastic skill to be able to get that. It's really hard work to get that big. You have to be thinking about food all the time. You have to be eating food all the time. You have to not be doing anything else. It's incredibly hard work to get that fat, if you think about it for a second. So what you do is you just take that motivation, take that behavior, and you change it to something else. Mm-hmm. Like I said, when we began, NLP talks about the structure of behavior, the structure of subjective experience. So the content at which they're applying that, that structure, that strategy to at that moment in time is putting weight on. But actually what they're demonstrating there by that behavior is they can do something really, really well. That's brilliant. Because all you've got to do, they've demonstrated they can do something really, really well. So they can do anything really, really well. All you've got to understand is how they are doing that and then get them to apply that to something else. Um, but randomly, I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen the film Train Spotting 2 or T2 at all? No, I um, haven't, actually. But I, I've been to all of the geographical locations that's filmed in that's in Scotland. But yeah. I, I haven't been up there. Everyone knows, well, anyone of a certain generation, obviously I'm getting on a bit, uh, remembers Train Spotting from the 90s. But um, obviously they brought out a sequel a few years ago. And I was watching it, and there's a bit where you and McGregor's character is talking to one of the other characters, but... And he said, we're addicts. That's what we do. We are addicted to things. All we do is change the addiction from being addicted to heroin to being addicted to something else. So in my, in, for me, I'm addicted to running. And this is what he does. He runs now, uh, the character that Ian McGregor plays. And that really is, we're not talking about addiction here as such, but that is really the crux of the principle of NLP. We are all very good at doing something. All we have to do is work out how we do that and do it somewhere else. So the person who puts on a lot of weight or smokes or whatever, they're going to be good at doing that. We understand how they do it and we apply it to something they want to do instead. Yes, in fact, your teachings have helped me with my coaching develop the, the victim persona versus mm-hmm. the athlete persona and taking someone yeah. who's feels downtrodden as a victim, feels angry at the world, feels upset, maybe they've had a trauma that's caused this emotional eating pattern and then applying all of that to becoming an athlete or the most athletic version of you that yeah. that's why they go from these massive transformations where they lose 50 kilos and 70 kilos because they're they're, they're shred they're applying that skill to becoming yeah. the the most powerful version of them but um but yeah, if, I, I realize you don't do smoking so much anymore, but you have so much knowledge on this area. And, and I know my clients would, would love to ask you these questions. So can anybody quit smoking or is it just a certain amount of people who are malleable to NLP? Is, are, is some people immune to NLP training? <laughs> A couple of questions in there um, that you've asked really, a couple of points. One is, yes, anyone can quit smoking, because if you can start smoking, you can stop it. Uh, It's as simple as that. Uh, Like I said, at some point you weren't a smoker, then you became a smoker. So it's not that you were born, you know, you you, you shot out uh, on on your birth with a fag in your mouth, and that's it, that's all you've ever done since the day you were born. Of course you haven't. Anything we can change. Uh, and like I say, NLP, a bit like with your clients, once you work out how they do that, how they do that, then you can just change anything else. NLP is sort of the holy grail of therapy or change work or something like that, is everybody knows somebody that they have just changed like that. You know, they have gone from being a smoker and then just stopped. And it was just like, wasn't a hassle or a problem for them. They just, one day they were smoking, then they decided they were going to quit. And they just stopped. Or someone who was overweight or unhealthy 
suddenly started exercising and that was it. Or maybe you can think of something in your life where you've done that. You've maybe struggled at it a few times and then all of a sudden, for some reason you don't really understand, it's just clicked and you've just suddenly changed and it was easy and it was quick and you've never looked back since. NLP is one of the closest things I've discovered. It's not 100% perfect, nothing is, but it's one of the closest things I've discovered to helping you understand how you and other people just suddenly have that moment of change. And once you understand that moment of change, how you do it, you can just apply that to anything. Uh, now, the question of whether anybody can do NLP or whether some people are immune to it, NLP isn't really, it, that's not really a, a right way of looking at what NLP is, because NLP is a thing, it doesn't really exist. It's just a way of understanding how we think and behave. So therefore, it's applicable to everybody. What most people think of when they talk about does NLP work is do the applications or techniques of NLP work? And of course, those don't work on everyone. If they did, Everyone will be doing NLP. We will go to all the prisons and we zap all the prisoners and they stop reoffending. Uh, we go to all the hospitals and we zap yeah. all the, 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 the patients and they get better. So obviously it doesn't work on everyone. But what you want to, what NLP does is it gives you a really good roadmap to understand what you're doing and understand how you can change it. And there are certain techniques that NLP has become famous for that work really, really well on the vast proportion of people. Things like the fast phobia cure, where you can get rid of phobias in you know, 10, 10 minutes. You know, I've, I, I've, my record at the moment is seven minutes. I've got rid of a lifelong phobia in seven minutes. Uh, wow. <laughs> I've had a competition with Bob. Uh, he's got it down to five. I was gutted. I haven't got, I haven't got that far yet. Uh, but seven minutes. Uh, but that doesn't mean I can get rid of everybody's phobia in ten minutes. Seven minutes. There are some people who, for whatever reason, I have been unable to work with. That could be something as simple as the fact that they haven't liked the shape of my head. You know, we all do that with people, don't we? Sometimes you meet people, and for whatever reason, you just can't get on with them. Uh, NLP helps improve your chances of getting on with someone, but, you know, it's not 100% perfect. And I've known people who have gone to one NLP practitioner or trainer and had a terrible, terrible time and not got any change and then come to me and I've managed to work with them. It's not necessarily because I'm a better NLP practitioner or a better NLP trainer or a better coach than that other person. It's just for whatever reason I've clicked with that person better. And and it does it does create a lot of trust and a lot of rapport in those first initial sessions when you're in, embarking on change. And you you have a few sessions and you work quickly and ethically. If you can um, help someone in a few sessions, you will. You don't sign them into these ridiculous packages. Although the transformation change of working with you for a year has been profound for for your clients mm -hmm. who have invested in themselves to to be a better version. So what I'm yeah. what I'm very interested in is. Let's say somebody quits eating or quits smoking or yeah. quits drinking after 10 years and then suddenly they relapse. What, what causes yeah. that? Because this switch that I think a lot of people can relate to that switch where everything becomes clear and you just go. Yeah. Your goals are just clear. There yeah. isn't this arming and ahhing. There isn't this yo-yo dieting. There isn't this confusion over what matters to you. You just go for it. But then sometimes you switch back. So what causes that? Yeah. That can be quite distressing for someone who believes they've got a new identity. The first thing to say that is very important is we are not overly, everybody's different and focusing on the reason they've changed or the reason they've, they've relapsed is often not the most useful thing to look at. Uh, you know, what you will tend to happen there is if someone relapses or goes back to start smoking, puts on weight and that sort of thing again, uh, and they start going, oh, why did I do that? Oh, no. Uh, if you start to, 
if you start trying to understand that, what you will sometimes get into this 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 downward spiral of what Michael Breen describes of defending the suffering. What he means by that is people will start to tell you all the reasons they can't change. You know, they'll tell you all the reasons that they've started smoking again and the reasons that hasn't worked. Now, what Richard Bandler says on this, and he said, say I take away a phobia from somebody and it crops up 10 years later, great, they've had 10 years where they haven't had the phobia. Fantastic. And the other thing that's fantastic is they've got rid of that phobia once before, so we can just get rid of that phobia again. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with any unwanted habit. We, we are complex incredibly complicated human beings. Lots of things are happening that we don't know about in our heads. Neurology is only really starting to come into its own now with um, sort of computer power we have now to be able to understand the brain. We're learning every day about how humans think, act and behave. So it's very, very difficult to understand the reasons that somebody does something, you know, they, they, they drift back into bad habits. But what we do know for certainty is they have stopped once before. So we just work with that to help them stop again. And as you say, if it's been 10 years, I haven't smoked. That's 10 years of not smoking. Yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. So so they start smoking again. So what? You know, you just help them stop again. You let them smoke and maybe give them a smoking holiday. So tell you what, have a few fags for a week. Enjoy yourself, let yourself out. And then in a week's time, we'll get rid of it again. How's that sound? (laughs) That's all you need to do. Uh, the, The worst thing you can do and the thing you need to stop people doing is beat themselves up about it. You know, then they're going, oh, I can't believe it's quit smoking 10 years ago. Let's start it again. That's the thing you, you really want to stop them doing as quickly as you possibly can, because that is just not a useful mindset at all. I have found that with working with high achievers, though, because they have these massive expectations of themselves, they're intelligent, they're ambitious, and so they know what they're doing, they feel even more humiliated when something as simple as chocolate cravings or coffee cravings yeah. or alcohol cravings seem to get the better of them, and they feel completely out of control, which isn't a place they like. And don't you find that with high achievers in particular, they find being mildly addicted to something or even fully addicted to something even more sort of humiliating and they sort of beat themselves up more. Yeah, there's a couple of things there. Is, is to be a high achiever, you have to be very, very driven. Now, in my experience, and this sounds mildly controversial, so bear with me, I've worked with uh, youth offenders, with drug addicts, with that sort of thing, and I've also worked with high achievers. You'll be surprised how much they have in common. If, you, to be, if you're that driven, to be that successful, often you find that people are addicted to that success. Does that make sense? Yes, there is, a, there is uh, an article of, of wealth is an addiction. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember I worked briefly, very, very briefly, with um, a hedge fund manager in New York, and he was worth, oh, I think it was like $1.9 billion or something like that. And he used to sulk regularly. And he used to sulk regularly because the guy across the hall in the department building in New York was worth something like $2.5 billion. And they sold because he wasn't as wealthy as this other guy. And I'm like, you've got $1.9 billion. I wouldn't even know where to start with that. But as you say, these people are driven by success. Wealth is addictive. It's the more, the more, the more, the more, the more, which is often going back to sort of one of the early questions you asked me, is helping people get that balance back later on when they realize that they're being driven by something that is, is overtaken them. Uh, you know, that has, was useful once but has now become unuseful you know behavior that was useful once but now has become unuseful but as you say you get a lot of high high achievers who tend to have quite addictive personalities so therefore they can find themselves very easily addicted to um 
to, you know, as you say, something as simple as chocolate. The other thing you have to understand about high achievers is everybody, when you're working that hard, whether you're a, a business person, an entrepreneur, a sports person, something like that, you cannot go 100% all the time. It's impossible. So you need some escape valve. You need some, some, some escape from it. And unfortunately, our brains are a bit annoying in this way. They're a bit like naughty little puppy dogs. If you don't train them, they tend to do you know, naughty little things. And so our brains tend to find what is the most ridiculous way of coping with our stress, if that makes sense. So you'll often find that high achievers are the ones that find it hardest to give up chocolate because that has become their go-to stress reliever. Uh, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier on. We all do something for a reason. Uh, in NLP, we have this presupposition, which is all behavior is purposive or adaptive, but by which I mean all behavior we do for a purpose, there's a reason we do it, or we do a behavior because we're adapting to our environment, we're changing to, to, to fix uh, fitting our environment. So if we think about all behavior is purposeful, that chocolate may just seem like chocolate to an outsider. It may even seem like chocolate, just chocolate to the person who's eating just the chocolate. But to their mind, it is an incredibly powerful coping mechanism that they really, really need to do to cope with this high-pressure, high-stress environment. Once you recognize it as a coping mechanism, it doesn't matter if it's chocolate, recreational drugs, smoking, drinking, jumping in the animal spot, whatever it is, you acknowledge it as a coping mechanism and then you can work with a client to find more meaningful and useful coping mechanisms for them. And that means that rather than stopping them eating chocolate, you're giving them another more useful behavior, which means they will go to that rather than going to the chocolate. And more useful coping mechanisms would be yoga, meditation. Uh, I f- is that the sort of thing you're, you're suggesting? Because I, I find it's quite a big ask to ask somebody to go from a line of... Um, something recreational, uh, some recreational drug to, um, why don't you just breathe deeply and count to 10? It doesn't quite hack it. So how do you you manage to get them off something so stimulating, the extreme highs, the extreme lows, that adrenaline, and then you just say, let's do Tai Chi together, just me and you. You know, I find find it doesn't quite quite, uh, fly in my negotiations with my clients. Uh, The the thing about that is, you, you, you've got you've got to speak from inside the the other person's understanding of the world, by which I mean you have to understand what it is that drives you to take the line, and then sell the yoga as if as if you are selling a line of coke. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. If you understand the reasons they are taking that line of coke, you can then apply that to something more useful that will give you. Um, give you the same stimulus now if you just go hey man let's do some yoga of course they're going to go they've got a preconception about what they think yoga is mm-hmm. and it's obviously something they don't want to do otherwise they would be doing it already so there you go i'm not doing any of that be yoga nonsense so what you need to understand is one what is it they're thinking yoga is yeah. that's stopping them from doing it and also what is it about the line of coke that's making you choose that instead once you understand their reasoning for choosing one thing over another, you then just apply the understanding of the cope to the things you want them to do instead. Um, Richard Bandler says, for example, that selling is the easiest thing to do in the world. You get someone into a wanton buying state and you point them at the product. Uh, by which he means what you do is you have a chat with a client about the best decision they ever made in their life. And they tell you about that best decision. That best decision. 
and then you understand the reasoning or the process they went through for that best decision and then you get the products you want to this is really sneaky by the way I shouldn't be saying this it's incredibly unethical um, and I don't recommend this as, a, as, a, as an approach incidentally um, I am doing this slightly tongue in cheek to, uh, to demonstrate a point um, you then apply that same process to the thing you want them to be doing and what you will find is if you package up what you want them to be doing in the same way as you package up something they already enjoy doing they will naturally start doing it. But at the moment, if you just say, hey man, let's do some yoga, you have a packaged it in a way that will be compelling enough for that person to do. Uh, but there's another interesting point there, actually, when you talk about recreational drug abuse. And this is this is an oversimplification, so you know, anybody that's you know, in neuropharmacology who's listening to this, I do apologise, you know much more about that than I do. Um, but most drugs we take, the vast majority of drugs we take, Actually, what they act as are messengers in the brain. What they do is we take them and they tell our brains what cocktails chemicals to release. So, for example, if you take MDMA, you take ecstasy, for example. Uh, ecstasy, what ecstasy does is it triggers um, the serotonin receptors in the brain. And what it does is it gets the brain to reuse rather than break. Again, this is a hideous oversimplification. I apologize for any uh, like neuropharmacologists out there. It gets us to reuse rather than break down the serotonin, which means it increases the serotonin levels in the brain, which gives you gives you know, people the buzz that you would normally get from MDMA. The interesting thing about that, once you think about it for a second, is the fact that if, if your brain can create that cocktail of chemicals already, you don't need the you don't need the external drug trigger to create that cocktail. All you need to do is be able to train your brain to release that cocktail by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Bandler had quite a lot of uh, success in the 1970s and 80s doing hypnotic heroin. What he would do is he would not he would put heroin addicts in a hypnotic trance and he would get them to Im- essentially imagine uh, taking heroin. And what he noticed was he would remove the physical drug from them and if you got into it, hip- it, take hypnotic heroin, as he called it, they would then have the same effect as taking heroin. And the interesting thing was that they would only start to suffer withdrawals once you stopped doing the hypnosis. So it demonstrated that most drugs, it's how the body reacts to it, not the drug itself. So for someone who is taking a lot of recreational drugs, you can actually get them to reaccess that state in a healthier, safer way using certain processes like hypnosis. I agree. And and there's this, um, there's this new movement, well, it's not a new movement, but it gets more popular now of mindfulness and being mindful. And this... Yeah. And I, I actually think that high performers are mindful all day and in the evening mm-hmm. they just need to be mindless actually and they, yeah. they use these, these uh, uppers and downers if you like to escape momentarily just to give yeah. themselves rest because they haven't learnt healthier ways of accessing this dreamlike state that you speak of and I encourage yeah. them to do things that they can lose themselves in for example dancing or I yeah. find weightlifting quite meditative to be honest. Um, I, I know I should really be counting the reps, but um, I outsource that. But thankfully, but but even losing yourself in a boxing uh, boxing class or something, just something where yeah. you can just let yourself go and drift and be free. The, the mind yeah. needs both sides of that: being mindful yeah. and 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 being mindless at the same time. But NLP and hypnosis are they different? Because sometimes my clients say, oh, "I just need to be hypnotized." And, there is a difference between NLP and hypnosis, and yet they are similar in their out in their output. Do you agree? 
Yeah, uh, well, actually, NLP and hypnosis, uh, you, you, if you recall, Stephanie, and your uh, practice, of course, you did learn some hypnosis. Uh, clearly, I hypnotized you very well, and you've uh, suffered from amnesia from it. <laughs> the, uh, I've been hypnotized ever the, since. Yeah, exactly, that's what it is. Uh, right, what, what you're thinking of, though, and probably what, what most people think of when you mention the word hypnosis, I think of two things immediately, often two completely contradictory things. One is hypnotherapy, and the other is stage hypnosis, where you get someone to act like a chicken or something like that. Both of those are applications of the principle of hypnosis. Hypnosis, in its broadest definition, is getting someone to enter an altered state. Uh, now, often that is a state of introspective focus, but it can be a state of anything else. You can use high-energy hypnosis. So uh, sometimes I will use hypnosis with sports people to get them to act as a high-energy state. When I um, when I first got into NLP and hypnosis, I was quite curious about what hypnosis was because it has a little bit of a, a bit of an iffy reputation at times. So I looked up hypnosis in the dictionary, and it said getting someone to alter, enter an altered state. Uh, and I went, okay, so what is an altered state? So I looked at the definition of the altered state, and it said any state other than the state the person is in at this moment in time. So, therefore, we hypnotize, each, we hypnotize ourselves all of the time, if you think about it. If, I'd say, if you're in a bit of a downer mood, and I tell you a joke and you laugh, I've just changed your state. I've just altered your state, which means I've just hypnotized you for want of a better term. But when most people think of hypnosis, they do think of sitting on the couch with their eyes closed and someone talking softly in their ear. Uh, that's one application of hypnosis. Now, we do do processes like that in NLP, particularly the Richard Bandler style of NLP would look very much a trance state where he was inspired by a very, very famous hypnotherapist uh, and clinical hypnotist called Milton H. Erickson. And what Erickson noticed was we are naturally going in and out of these hypnotic states throughout the day. You've probably got in your car and driven somewhere and got there and gone, oh, I don't remember any of that journey whatsoever. It's because what's happened is you've gone into a hypnotic state as you've been driving where your unconscious mind has taken over and got you safely to your destination. So everybody has experiences in their life when they've had some form of hypnotic state. And what you were talking about a few minutes ago about you know, lifting weights or dance or something like that, that is about entering a tr using those to enter a trance-like state, as you say, to help the person relax. I don't know, here's another random movie reference for you. Have you seen the film Layer Cake at all, by any chance? No, I think we watch um, different films, you and I, but um, tell me about <laughs> Layer Cake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but the, I always remember this. It's, 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 there's a film in, in Layer Cake. Um, I, I don't know, maybe your maybe your listeners have listened, seen Layer Cake. If not, it's a, it's, a, it's a very early Daniel Craig film before he became James Bond. It's actually very good. Um, but there's a character in it called Marty, I think, who's a hitman. Bear with me, there's a point to this. And he sits there, and what he does, he takes a, a, he sits at the table and, and, and takes the gun apart at the table. And Daniel Craig's character turns around and he goes, it looks like you could do that blindfolded. And he says... Actually, I can. I find this as my uh, meditation. Mm. And Daniel Craig, what, you, you, you meditation through violence. He goes, well, what it is, is meditation is keeping the front part of your brain active with a mundane task so that the back part of your brain can find peace. And I thought that, for wow. a throwaway comment, and essentially a bit of an action thriller, is one of the best definitions I've ever heard of, of meditation or of trance, which is you do something, as you say, lifting weights or something like a mundane-ish task mm -hmm. that allows our, that, that, that 
that completely takes over the front part of our brain, all our attention, which then allows the back part of the brain, the brain, the part of the brain, somebody whizzing around making all these wild connections. But as you say, these high performers are probably in that state all the time because that's how they become high performers. Uh, it allows that part of the brain to find some peace. So you don't necessarily need to do what would be traditionally considered translate work. You don't need to do yoga. You don't need to do tai chi. You don't need to sit, you know, in lotus position thinking, blimey, my knees really hurt. You can take your gun apart. You can lift weights. You can do anything that for you allows you to access that translate state. And if it's something that's personal to you that you enjoy doing, you'll be more motivated to do it, which means you'll be more likely to do it, which means you'll get the benefits in the long run. Absolutely. And I've always found your uh, techniques very innovative and your analytical mind is amazing. And I just find you so motivational. And how can we book a session with you, Matt? Uh, the best um, place to find me is if you go to mattcaulfield.co.uk, that's M-A-T-T-C-A-U-L-F-I-E-L-D. I should have really picked an easier spell name. Uh, mattcaulfield.co.uk. You can find all the details about uh, my training courses and my one-to-one sessions there and also a contact page where you can send me an email or give me a call. I have, since 2008, I have been in using uh, Skype and FaceTime and particularly um, uh, things like Zoom uh, uh, to connect with people around the world. So most of my sessions now are actually done uh, sort of through the computer via Skype and that sort of thing, which has allowed me to work with anybody from all over the world. So I've worked with people from the Bahamas to Belgium to Australia to Canada uh, because all you need to do is book a time we're both available and sit in front of the computer with a decent internet connection. And Matt, you've written a few books. Tell us about those and what they cover. And you, you've got some in the pipeline. Oh, yeah. Um, I've written, I started doing something called the NLP Demystified series a few years ago, which was taking very specific areas of NLP and, and exploring them in a lot more detail. So what I did was look to areas that sometimes are often misunderstood or not very well explained and then written normally quite a short, quite technical book for what are NLP trainers and NLP practitioners. On the side of that, I've written a few more easily accessible books. Uh, I've written uh, one about mindfulness uh, called Mindfulness Meditation Demystified, allowing people to access uh, into mindfulness and meditation easily. And I've written something called um, The Pocketbook for the Flaneur of Life, which is uh, sort of a little bit of a light-hearted book. Uh, I don't know if you know, but a flaneur is somebody who walks slowly around a city taking in the sights. And my attitude is we should be flaneurs of life. We should walk around life taking in, uh, you know, slowly taking in and drinking in the details. Uh, I do have quite a few more in the pipeline. I'm actually at the moment in the middle of writing a more easily accessible book on NLP that complete newbies can come to. So hopefully that'll be out in the next few months. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Steph. Thank you for sharing your inspiring insights and helping the Urban Health Podcast and keeping entrepreneurs healthy and powerful.